How is everybody? Good, good. I, I used to ask people to stand, but I'm not going to do that because I had some uh, vets approach me and say that they didn't like the attention of it. So I'm not going to do that to you, but I'm not going to let you uh, active military and vets off the hook. Uh, because of you guys and you women, um, we have all the freedoms that we have in this country, including the one that we're going to exercise today. So... Uh, That's all right. <laughs> That's pretty cool. Um, we live in the greatest nation on planet Earth. We're not perfect. Uh, but man, we have rights that, that very few people on earth get to exercise. And again, this is one of them. We have a freedom of religion. We have the freedom to speak however we want to speak and voice our opinions, study the word of God, teach it openly. And again, not very many places on earth have the kind of freedom that we have. That's, that's beautiful. Um, I'll tell you a fun story about uh, a vet that's on staff, Josh Jamerson, who is right behind me, um, former Marine. And uh, he's kind of a germaphobe and we, we pick on him a lot. So let me tell you how much of a germophobia is. So I leave mints out here every week, right? And that like really bothers him. He's like, dude, people are probably touching your mints. And I'm like, why would they touch my mints? You know, like, but uh, so he'll throw away whatever mints are up here and like get me new mints that haven't been opened. And if there's like a water that's open, he's like, dude, you don't, you know, like we'll get rid of the old water and get you new. And I'm like, okay. So uh, I told everyone last night to, to lick their hands and walk up to Josh and like touch him. And he, was in the, he wasn't in the room when I said this. So he came up to me this morning, he goes, dude, all these people are like licking their hands and trying to touch me. What's up with that? And I'm like, I don't know. A bunch of weirdos, huh? So uh, <laughs> on a for real note, though, we, we thank you so much. Um, all of you vets and all of you active military and all first responders, police officers, sheriff's department, all of you, you do not get the respect that you deserve. And um, it's pretty neat to see our church stand up for that. That was pretty cool. Okay. So we have been in the book of Revelation for a while. And if you have not been here, this is an interesting time to jump in because we are in the thick of it. We are in probably the most complicated parts of it, at least to me, and I've studied it many, many times, but it's a very, very complicated section of Revelation, the middle chunk from about chapter six to 16, which is a pretty good sized portion of the book, uh, gets a little, it gets pretty tough. And what makes it tough is the chronology. At least that's what makes it difficult for me is keeping all the events in line, making sure that our timeline makes sense. Now, here's the thing before I get into this today. We can disagree on some of these timelines, and we will reiterate what the main point of Revelation is, what we really need to get out of Revelation. We'll reiterate that a little bit towards the end, okay? Just so, you know, we can agree to disagree on minor issues, but we got to focus on the major issue, and we'll get to that here in a minute. Well, let me catch up a little bit. In chapter 5, if you weren't here, John is in heaven. He's in the throne room of God. He sees God holding a scroll. Now, what's the big, big deal about this scroll? This scroll that has writing on both sides and is sealed with seven seals, this is essentially the book of Revelation. This is the scroll, the text that tells us how the future is going to unfold, talks us about God's judgment, tells us about the unraveling of the universe and the creation of the new heavens and the new earth, and all of the future is contained in the scroll. So who is worthy to take such an important scroll? Chapter 5 says there's only one, and that's Jesus Christ. He comes and takes the scroll, and in the sixth chapter, 
he starts to break these seals and the contents of the scroll start to come out. They start to unfold in what is the last seven years of, of life as we know it called the Great Tribulation, okay? Now in chapter seven that we covered last week, which is a complicated chapter, we talked about the 144,000, the different approaches we can take to that. Either it's a remnant of Christians or it's a remnant of Jewish people that God had promised. That's the camp I fall into called the dispensational view of the 144,000. And then we talked about this great multitude in heaven that John sees this huge crowd of people in heaven and the crowd is getting bigger over time. And he kind of asks, well, why is this crowd getting bigger? And an elder in heaven says, it's the people coming out of the great tribulation who are being killed for their faith and they're joining this celebration in heaven as it's going on, people coming out. So the number is getting bigger and bigger, okay? Now, chapter eight, we will kind of move on from the seals. That's the first series of events. And we'll move into the second series of events called the trumpets. And we'll do four of them. And the other ones will come uh, later on in chapters nine and beyond, okay? So that's where we're gonna get into a little bit today. Now, again, uh, we're in some complicated deep waters at this, at this juncture in Revelation. So I recommend these notes that you got, hold on to those. Go back and read a little bit, study a little bit. Just, just hold on to those notes. They'll come in handy. Eventually, if you, you know, start a church and want to teach Revelation, all the work will already be done for you. So uh, anyways, if you don't have a notes handout, everything will be on the screens. If you have a Bible, we're in the very last chapter of the Bible, or the very last book of the Bible, chapter eight. And if you have your smartphone, the Experience Community app, very, very handy. Click on services and sermon notes. It has all the scripture, has uh, all the notes that'll be on the screen. Very, very handy, Okay. All right, so I'm going to pray. We'll jump into chapter eight. Uh, it's a pretty intense chapter. It's short, but it's dense and it's intense, okay? So uh, we'll dive into it and we'll see where the Lord takes us, okay? Lord Jesus, God, we love you. I just want to tell you thank you, God. Thank you, Lord, for our freedom. Thank you, Lord, for this wonderful nation. God, it, it's not perfect, Lord, but it's very, very good. And you've blessed us, God. Lord, thank you for the men and women in here who have served, who have, who have put their life on the line for the freedom that we're exercising right now, God. Lord, thank you, Jesus, for every church in our city. We pray that you bless them. Thank you for every nonprofit in our city. We pray that you bless them, God. And thank you for your word that leads us and guides us and directs us, Lord. We love you and we thank you, Lord, and we give all of this to you today, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. One last thing before I start teaching. On your way out, uh, they need about 75 kids sponsored for uh, the Kids Helping Kids. Go back there and talk to them and get a little bit of information. And uh, I think it takes about 80 bucks to feed a kid for a year. So go back there and, and if God lays it on your heart, sign up either to volunteer or to, to maybe sponsor one of those kids. That'd be awesome. So they got about 80 kids that need, or 75 kids that need sponsored. So, all right, let me read. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand in the presence of God and seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel with a golden incense burner came and stood at the altar. He was given a large amount of incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar in front of the throne. The smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up in the presence of God from the angel's hand. The angel took the incense burner, filled it with fire from the altar, and hurled it to the earth. There were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. 
So chapter seven showed us what was happening with people, the people on earth and then people in heaven during the time of the great tribulation. Chapter eight is gonna take us back to a heavenly vantage point, back to seeing what is going on from kind of the top looking down. And, and I should have bold this and made it in a different color, but here's kind of the thesis of chapter eight. God is going to do extraordinary things, crazy things, in order to get humanity's repentance, in order to get our attention, to get us to turn our eyes to God and give our lives to Christ. So chapter eight is gonna be extraordinary events meant to get our attention, our attention. So before the seventh seal is broken, there is this dramatic pause in heaven for about, it says about a half an hour. Now, if you've been with us the last couple of weeks, heaven seems like a very loud place. And I don't mean that to like spark anxiety with any of you who don't like loud noises, but the volume in heaven seems to be pretty big. The scope of heaven seems to be pretty big. We've read several times about people celebrating from every nation and tribe and language and all these different things, running around with palm branches and white robes and this huge celebration, this scope and volume seems to be immense in heaven. But now we see something that we've never seen before and has possibly never happened before in heaven, silence. It is absolutely quiet. Everyone has paused because there is this anticipation of something huge that is about to take place. Now, we have no, I'm gonna contradict this statement later, by the way. We have no reason to believe that the half hour is not a literal half hour. There is this 30 minute time where everything in heaven stops in anticipation for whatever this event is. Now, if you've been with us, I talked about these series of events, seals, trumpets, bowls. And I said one of the most logical, at least in my opinion, way of viewing this series of event is six events, six events, six events, and then the seventh event, the last one in each, each, each series, seems to be the same event. Now this makes that idea problematic because it looks like the seventh seal leads into the seven trumpets. I'll talk about later, though, while I, why I still think that it's the same event, the seventh event in each series. But regardless of where this seventh seal takes place, it not only mesmerized the author, it mesmerized all of heaven. Whatever was going to follow this was going to be a very, very big deal. So John says, then he saw seven angels. Now, these are seven angels that we haven't talked about yet. And if you study Jewish folklore, and if you even study old, old Christian history, Christian folklore essentially, there is names for all of these seven angels, though only two of them are biblical, Gabriel and Michael. The other ones, I don't really know where they derived from, but these people have made up these names for these angels. So each of these seven angels is given a trumpet. And this is not like a trumpet that they would play like in high school band or like they would do in marching band. It didn't have keys on it. It wasn't made for playing music. It was more like a bugle that was made to just signal an event. In this case, and in most cases in history, trumpets, these kinds of trumpets, were used to signal war. So the eighth angel, there's these seven angels with these trumpets or bugles, if you will. And then this eighth angel shows up and he's not holding a trumpet, He's holding an incense burner, this huge golden bowl. And this eighth angel is standing by the altar in heaven. Now, if you were with us for chapter six, all of the people who have been murdered for Jesus, who have been murdered because they followed Jesus Christ, in heaven, they are metaphorically under this altar. 
They're in kind of a, almost like a VIP section in heaven because they gave their life to Jesus Christ. And they're constantly crying out to Jesus, when will we have justice for what has been done against us? So this eighth angel walks up to that altar and he takes the prayer of the saints, that's us, by the way, he takes the prayers of the saints, he takes the petition and the cries of the martyrs and he puts them into this incense bowl. He mixes them together and he offers these to God and they are accepted to God or by God. So what this signifies is when all of these martyrs are asking God, when is the time when we're going to get justice? That time is about to come. And so this angel takes fire from the altar. We may interpret that as God's anger towards this injustice. And so he takes fire from the altar, mixes it with the prayers and the cries of the martyrs, and he hurls this bowl onto the earth. And then it says peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake took place. Now, the reason why I and a lot of other theologians believe that the seventh event is the same in every series is it describes the seventh event exactly the same. I mean, word for word, exactly the same. So not only is the terminology the same for the last of each event, but the severity of the event is huge. There is nothing else like this earthquake that's going to take place, okay? Now, there's a man named David Pawson if you really get into studying the book of Revelation, David Pawson, he's a British theologian. I greatly recommend that you buy some of his books on Revelation. He breaks it down in a very simple way, but a very, very profound way. He's probably one of my favorite theologians. He talks about in Revelation, he believes that right before the seventh seal is broken, that 30 minute, that half hour time of, of everything stopping in heaven, he doesn't believe it to be a literal half hour. Here's me contradicting myself. He doesn't believe it to be a literal half hour. He believes it to be a figured amount of short time where all these other events we're gonna study in Revelation happen. And then the seventh seal happens, which he believes is the same as the seventh bowl and the seventh trumpet. And that's when the end takes place. That's when Christ comes back. That's the end of it all. And that's why everyone is pausing in anticipation of this coming back of Christ, okay? Now, here's where we get into the interesting stuff. And the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet and hail and fire mixed with blood were hurled to the earth. So a third of the earth was burned up, a third of the trees were burned up, and all of the green grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet and something like a great mountain ablaze with fire was hurled into the sea. So a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel blew his trumpet and a great star blazing like a torch fell from heaven it fell on a third of the rivers and the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood, and a third of the waters became Wormwood. So many of the people died from the waters because they had been made bitter. Again, here's where it gets very, very interesting. Now, here comes this, chron uh, this chronological problem, this disagreement with timelines. Some people believe the seals that we've just got done covering, right? they believe that that has been happening since Jesus died on the cross. So what we've studied up to this point 
has been happening for thousands and thousands of years, okay? That's what they, so this verse six, when it says they're preparing to blow their trumpets, that is the time between Jesus's crucifixion and when the seven years of the great tribulation begin. Now listen, I do not personally agree with that. I believe the seals are part of the seven years. But if you disagree with me on that, it's okay, right? We're gonna get to the main crux of Revelation here in a second. So if we disagree on the chronology, it's okay. You don't have to like curse at me or like leave the church or you know, do anything rash, right? Like it'll be okay, right? So, so the first trumpet is this. It is hail, fire, and blood. The first trumpet marks an ecological catastrophe. Something is going to happen with the earth. It's gonna happen worldwide. It says a third of the earth was burned up, which means a third of the vegetation on earth will be contaminated and destroyed. Now this could be a fallout of the seals. It could be a fallout of that, but it could be something that God does in this instance. Now the prophet Joel, about 800 years before Revelation was written, the prophet Joel prophesied this verbatim, but he says something encouraging. When God destroys a third of the vegetation on earth, Joel says that everyone during this time who calls upon the Lord will be saved. So the bright side of this is a lot of people will recognize that this ecological catastrophe is from God and they will give their life to Jesus during that time. That's kind of a silver lining in this. The first trumpet is not fatal yet. It doesn't directly kill people and animals, but anyone in here can, 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 uh, can add this up and realize this, that if you kill a third of the vegetation on earth, that's going to lead up to fatalities later, both with animals and with humans. But this first trumpet is a warning. It is God trying to get our attention and say, hey, look at me, give your life to me. Now, here's the thing, whether we disagree on global warming or not, I believe most people in here though, know that scientists say, just a mild variation in global temperature or ecological things can have huge effects on humanity, just little bitty changes. Imagine if one third of all the vegetation on earth died, people would be freaking out. It would be hysteria. People would be going insane and rightfully so, it would be absolutely terrifying. So let me tell you a little bit about these three trumpets though, before we go any further, these first three. We don't know the mechanisms by which these will take place. But we live in an era now where we talk a lot about nuclear war and nuclear fallout, right? And so it's not a big stretch of the imagination. If we were to have one nuclear war, the fallout just from one nuclear war could easily kill a third of the vegetation on earth. Not just that. From a biblical perspective, God has struck vegetation before. Actually, multiple times. The first one's in Genesis chapter three. When sin comes in, he strikes the vegetation and changes the ecological structure of, of the environment. Here's the thing though, John is not concerned with the mechanism. He's not necessarily concerned with how it's going to happen, but that it is going to happen and that God is doing it to get our attention. God isn't doing it because he hates us. God is doing it because he loves us and he's trying to get us to look at him. The second trumpet, this is again where it gets very interesting to me. The second trumpet is called a great mountain that is ablaze. Now this is more than likely going to be a volcano. Some people think a meteorite, but most people think this will be some kind of volcanic eruption. 
The sea that this volcano will more than likely contaminate is the Mediterranean Sea. Why? Because it extends to all the oceans on earth. It has been the focus of the Romans. It has been the focus of the Greeks. And it has been the focus of the Middle Easterners for centuries and centuries and centuries. So what sea would this volcano contaminate? It makes all the sense that it would contaminate the Mediterranean Sea. And it says that this sea will be turned to blood. It says the great mountain that was hurled into the sea will contaminate one-third of the salt water on earth. It will not literally turn to blood, but the color of it might be red because of what is happening from the contamination of the volcano or if it happens to me, a meteorite. And now we see a death toll. One-third of the aquatic creatures in the saltwater, bodies of salt water will die because of this. Imagine the sight of that. Again, you talk about fear. Imagine seeing a third of all the aquatic animals in the salt waters dead. Not just that. It says that ships will be destroyed. So that also means that there will be human casualties in the oceans as well. Now, listen, here, we're going to get real here for a second. A lot of people read this and they say, this sounds like science fiction. There's no way something like this could happen. Here we go, right? So this is Mount Etna. This is one of the most active volcanoes on planet Earth. This is on the eastern coast of Sicily on the Mediterranean Sea. That's the Mediterranean right in front of it. Now, I have taught on Mount Etna before, years and years and years ago, but I was thinking, has anything recently happened with Mount Etna? So I did some investigating. The New York Post wrote an article on Mount Etna just a couple of months ago. Look at this. Mount Etna is sliding towards the sea, which could have devastating consequences, scientists warn. The giant volcano is edging closer to the Mediterranean Sea, which could result in collapse. Etna is one of the most active volcanoes in the world. It is in an almost constant state of activity with a history of violent eruptions. So for this to take place is not outside of the scope of reality. In fact, there are scientists who are very, very concerned about Mount Etna contaminating and doing huge ecological damage to the Mediterranean Sea and the countries around it. Interesting stuff. The third trumpet is a great star falling into the fresh waters of the earth. Now, more than likely, this is a meteorite, and it says it will affect a third of the rivers and fresh water, so not salt water, fresh water. Now, if it were to hit the Nile and the Amazon, or one or the other, or both, that would do considerable amounts of damage. These two rivers affect a lot of people, so it makes sense that the fresh water that it would hit would typically be the Nile, or the Amazon, and many people would be negatively affected by this. Now, it says this star that hits the fresh water is named Wormwood. What in the heck is up with that? Well, Wormwood is an extremely bitter but medicinal plant. It won't kill you if you eat it. It's not poisonous, but it can make you extremely sick, and it makes water unfit to drink. So this meteorite will hit fresh water and it will make it unfit to drink, which will cause more human fatalities. Now again, God has done this before. He did this to the Nile River before in Exodus chapter seven. He did something similar to get the attention of the Egyptians who needed to turn around and give their life to the true God. Now, just to ensure that none of you go to sleep tonight, 
<laughs> NASA is also preparing for such an event. If you get on nasa.gov, they have the Near Earth Object Research Department that, that all the time they are researching and watching the sky for giant meteorites that could hit either land or bodies of water that could do huge ecological damage. So again, if someone reads chapter eight of Revelation and says, ah, it sounds like science fiction to me, NASA would disagree with you. They think it is a real possibility and they are preparing for something like that on Earth, okay? Last part. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of them were darkened. A third of the day was without light, and also a third of the night. I looked, and I heard an eagle flying high overhead, crying out in a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to those that live on the earth because of the remaining trumpet blasts that the three angels are about to sound. So, the focus, John has already seen a third of the vegetation be destroyed. He has seen a third of the aquatic animals be destroyed. He has seen devastation on earth, on the land. He has seen devastation in the freshwaters, in the oceans. And now God turns his attention to the sky. Now there's a possibility that is a third darker because of all the other things that have happened, right? From volcanic ash or debris in the air, that that's why it's a third darker. That's probably not what it is. More than likely, it is literal. It is a cosmic change. Now, if we're a Christian and we believe God spoke the universe into existence, we also believe that God can speak it out of existence. So more than likely, the text is literal. The sun is a third darker. The moon is a third darker. The stars are starting to burn out of the sky, and the sky is a third darker. What John was seeing at this point was the beginning of the end. He was starting to see the universe unravel. Now, it's interesting. If you study astrophysics, because I, I know that's what you guys do in your spare time, if you look into astrophysicists, most astrophysicists nowadays believe that the universe is expanding, but they believe there will come a time when it will not only stop expanding, but the universe will collapse upon itself, and then there'll be like another big bang, and it will rapidly expand again. Revelation 21 tells us that's what's going to happen. God will wipe away the heavens and the earth, and he will create a new heaven and earth. So this is taking place, and it will take place. God will wipe away all things and create all things again. Now, again, you don't have to be a, a rocket scientist to know we would not be able to endure this very long. If we were to literally lose a third of the light and power of the sun, we would not be able to survive humanity very long. That signifies that by this point, the end is coming pretty soon. And the reason why God is dismantling the earth, the ocean, the reason why God is dismantling even the sky, again, is to get our attention so we will ask for forgiveness of our sins and give our life to him. Again, he is doing this not because he hates us, but because he loves us. Now look at this, it gets even crazier. John says he looks up and there is an eagle flying high overhead. Now this isn't an eagle, like a bald eagle. This is another word for an angel. And this angel is flying over the earth crying out about the coming judgments of God. The word woe translates to catastrophe. 
So this angel is looking down at the world and there are so many different interpretations of what this means. Could this be religious leaders, you know, shouting at the world saying, we gotta change? Or could God have literally sent an angel to fly around the globe, crying down to humanity? Catastrophe, catastrophe, catastrophe. Because if you think the, four, the first four trumpets were bad, this angel says, you haven't seen anything yet. Wait till the next three. And he is warning the earth to change their direction. Now again, however this shakes down is irrelevant. Again, John is not concerned with the mechanism and how these trumpets will come into fruition. But what we need to be concerned about is, is they will most definitely take place. It says in Revelation, Jesus said to John, write these things down because these words are faithful and they are true. They are going to take place. They also seem like these events are very close to each other. So here's what we need to remember. We may disagree about the chronological order. We may disagree about things like the rapture. We may disagree when the seven years start. We may disagree with those things. Those are minors. The major is this though, and you have to remember this. The overall theme of the book of Revelation is one day Jesus will come back, one day he will come back, and we must be prepared. By the time he comes back, there will be no more time. He will judge us and we will either go into an eternity with him or we will e eternally be separated from him. So the overall thing that we need to remember is one day he is coming back and we must be ready for that. So chapter eight, <clears throat> it shows us the beginning of the dismantling, dismantling all of creation, the land, the sea, and even the sky in order to get mankind's attention. Why is God doing this? Because it is God's will, it is his hope, it is his desire that no one goes to hell. Listen, if anyone ever tells you that God's will is always done, that's not true. It is God's will that no one goes to hell, but there will be people in hell. It is God's desire though, that none of us perish for eternity. So God is going to go to extraordinary lengths. He is literally going to change the cosmos, the earth and the water. He is going to go to extraordinary lengths to get our attention, to get us to recognize that he is there. And here's what he's doing. God is gonna tear down all creation, eventually wipe it all away, but he's gonna rebuild it and it's going to be perfect. We will get to that at the end of Revelation. But here's what God is doing to us. I hope you, I hope you hear this. God is also breaking us down in the hopes that we can be made back into something perfect. It's this idea of being the, the clay in the potter's hand, right? That God must break us down. He must get his hands on us. He must sometimes squeeze us and shape us and put pressure on us. Sometimes he may even have to break us down and remelt us in heat to get us to where we are malleable and we can be made into something to look like him. But in order to be broken down and be made into something wonderful, Jesus said we have to lose our lives to find our lives. It means we have to be humble. It means that we have to be willing to, we hate this word, we have to be willing to submit to the higher authority that is God. 
We have to be willing to be humble. We have to be willing to be shaped by him. I love what Paul says. How dare I, the clay, look up to the potter and ask, why am I made this way? It's an arrogant thing to ask the creator why he does things the way he does. So we have to be willing to be shaped. We have to be willing to let God get his hands on our lives. And sometimes that hurts. Sometimes it's pressure. Sometimes it's heat. Sometimes it's frustrating. It's confusing. But we have to trust him. We have to lose our lives in order to find it. But here are some questions. The first one is this. Have we become too hardened to be shaped by God? We are a very angry society. We're a very cynical society. We're a very entitled society. We're a very victimized society. Have we become too angry, too cynical? Have we become too hardened to be shaped by God? So often I, people, I hear people say, well, I gave up on the church because I got hurt in the church. Join the club. Whenever you deal with humanity, you're going to be disappointed. I hate to tell you this. Everyone will disappoint you. I'm sure you've had a bad experience in restaurants. Did you stop eating? <laughs> We're all going to be hurt. Do you know what the turning point was at this church? We were about three years into it. The church that my wife and I got saved in, we were excommunicated from. We didn't do anything wrong. We just disagreed and they kicked us out and said, don't ever come back. I was angry. And it was about three years into doing this church. I was teaching the book of Genesis. I was finishing up with the story of Joseph, who if you talk about someone that was abused by believers of God, it was Joseph. His brothers sold him into slavery, tried to kill him. And what did he do when he saw him? He was angry at first, but then he forgave him. I just got done teaching that lesson. And God spoke to me and said, it's time for you to forgive me. I called up my former pastor and said, I am so sorry that I wasn't everything you wanted me to be. And then he apologized to me, we reconciled. But it took me letting go of that anger the blaming of other people for the things that have happened in my life. I had become too hardened. But when I submitted, when I stepped back, God could use me again. He could mold me. There are some of you in this room that need to get rid of the bitterness in your heart. It is time for you to let go of the offenses of the past, the things that have happened to you. It is time for you to start forgiving some people, whether they've asked for your forgiveness or not. And then you can be humble and you can be molded by God. Let me ask you this. Are we too distracted to hear the warning cries of God? We're watching Netflix four or five hours a day. We're on Facebook three or four hours a day. We're always listening to something. When we want answers, we turn to Fox News or CNN or MSNBC or talk radio or blah, 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 and all these things. And let me give you guys some good advice. You need to turn off all those talking heads and you just need to listen to Christ sometimes. Turn the radio off on the way to work. I'll be a spoiler alert. All the news you will hear today will be bad. It'll all be bad. I used to love listening to NPR because I loved fresh air and all these little like people stories, you know. There's a guy that worked in a factory in Pennsylvania. I'm like, yeah, tell me about that guy, right? And now it's just all about how Trump's the devil and like everything's evil all the time and the world's going to hell. And I get sick of it, man. There's no hope in that. There's no peace in that. So I've just turned it all off. I did something, I felt very emboldened the other day and I just deleted Facebook off my phone. It was like I just got healed of cancer or something. 
Facebook has just become this cesspool of bad ideas and people who are a lot braver behind their computer than they are in real person, right? And I just wanted to get rid of it. And it felt really, really good. And so sometimes we need to cut off those distractions. We are so distracted when people say, I can never hear God. It's because you have a thousand other voices screaming at you from every angle. And sometimes you need to push away from those voices and get alone, cut out the distractions, turn off the radio, turn off the TV, go for a walk, sit outside, go for a drive in silence and just listen and just, just talk with him. Some of us say we can't see God or feel God. Most of us are so self-centered, we're never gonna see God if we're constantly staring at ourselves. We're never gonna see God because we're just concerned about us. God's trying to get our attention, but we're always just worried about me, right? We live in a selfie generation. That was the word of the year two years ago. We're a generation that is just all about me. It's look at me. It's my reality. It's my choices. It's, it's my identity. It's my destiny. It's me, 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 me. We will never see God again. Jesus said, if you want to find your life, you first have to lose yours. It has to all be about him and not about you. Here's a question I had to ask myself this week. How many times, I'm gonna sound like a charismatic nut here for a second, right? How many times has God sent eagles or angels into my skies, but I'm so busy looking down and doing the things that Corey wants to do. I'm not looking up to see that God has sent someone to say, Corey, catastrophe, catastrophe, catastrophe. Don't go this way. It's destructive. Don't do this. It's going to hurt you. It's going to hurt others. Catastrophe, catastrophe. But my problem is I'm not looking up. Do you know what that translates to? I'm not praying enough. I'm not strategically finding time to get on my knees and look up and say, God, give me the answer. God, show me what to do. God, direct me, protect me, fill me with your Holy Spirit, protect my wife, protect my kids, protect my congregation, protect my city. God is constantly sending things in our lives. You know, when you guys lose that job or something bad happens to you, we often blame God and yell at him, what are you doing? And maybe God has sent something your way. Maybe God has caused you to lose that job because it's become more important than the church. Maybe God has broken up these relationships in your life because they've become idols. Maybe you're broke because God knows that you can't handle money properly. And he's saying, catastrophe, catastrophe. You're going the wrong direction. You're not looking to me for your answers. You're not looking to the skies, looking for God. What has been sent in your skies? Because guys, all the time, there are things happening around us all the time and God is screaming at us to look up. But we've got so many other things going on. We've got so many things going on. Eventually I'll get to that. And God is screaming, catastrophe, catastrophe, catastrophe. Listen, let me, let me, let me give you the best advice I can ever give you. The best advice I can ever give you. If you will make time, and again, I've heard every excuse under the sun for why people don't have more time. I don't know if you guys know this or not, like Neil Armstrong only had 40 hours, or I'm sorry, he only had uh, 24 hours a day just like we did, right? 
He's an astronaut, right? Like, just because people are successful, people are like, well, I would be an astronaut too if I had more time. No one has extra hours in the day. I hope you guys know this, right? The sun doesn't like pause for people who have more money or more education. Like, like it all revolves the same. We all have the same amount of time a day. It's what we prioritize in our day. Let me give you the best advice I can give you. Block off 15 or 20 minutes a day. That's not much. And if it has to be your commute time, if, it, if you have to get to work 30 minutes early so you can sit in your office for a second, that's what I do every day, you need to block off that time to cut everything else off. And you need to literally, literally get on your knees and say, God, I need my daily bread. I need you every single day. We need to ask God to forgive us I said last week, we need to empty ourselves of ourselves so then we can be full of the Holy Spirit. We need to do this every single day. Guys, the world is only going to get nuttier, which means we need him. That's why Hebrew says it in chapter 10. That's why it says, that's why we need the church more and more and more because God knows the world is gonna get worse and worse and worse. And we have got to be connected. We've got to look up to the skies and say, God, lead me, lead me. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Listen, if you're in this room and um, maybe you're not a Christian, maybe you're on the fence or maybe you have just given your life to Jesus but you don't know what to do now. If you fall into that category, up here to my right, your left is Dave. Dave's standing over here, right at the front of the stage. If you have any questions, uh, and, and, and there's, no, there's no bad questions, if you're confused about all this, come up here and talk to Dave. There's also men and women on both sides of the stage. If you need prayer for anything, anything, come up here and let them pray for you. They're not perfect people but they will, they will join with you, they'll pray with you, they'll agree with you, they'll hear you out, please use that. Here's the last thing, there's communion all the way around us, wherever you see a lamp on a table. There's bread and juice that represents the body and blood of Jesus Christ, that God gave his only son to die for our sins even while we were sinners, that's what it says. Everyone is welcome to take that and remember that God loves us, that he's there for us, the only thing you need to do before you take the communion is you have to ask God to forgive you of your sins. Now, as your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, let me, let me just encourage you. <clears throat> you can leave today refreshed. Doesn't mean that everything's gonna be perfect when you leave this building, but you have the opportunity in a safe place to take a couple of minutes, guys. Take your communion, really think about what you're doing and say, God, give me the strength to cut out the noise, the distractions. And Lord, let me just listen to you. Let me be able to hear you clearer. Let me be able to see what you're doing. Talk to me. God, if you're trying to get my attention, you've got it right now. Help me and see if the Lord won't speak to you. I also encourage you this week, block out some time. Make some time to sit and be quiet, to pray, to talk to him. 
and listen. Lord Jesus, God, we love you. Thank you so much for this church. I thank you, God, for every man, woman, and child in this building. I pray, Lord, that you give us wisdom. I pray that you lead us and guide us and strengthen us and encourage us, Lord. And God, if you have sent angelic beings in our path, if you have sent eagles in our skies, Lord, let us be looking up. Lord, let us notice and recognize what you're trying to say to us, God. Father, Lord, we love you. We thank you. We praise you. Bless everyone in this room, God. Strengthen us until we meet again, Lord. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. I love you guys so much. You're welcome to help yourself. Thank you guys.